Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Grzbowski and this is a Blind Entrepreneurship Bonus Episode brought to you by Penji, a podcast that helps entrepreneurs and business professionals execute their vision to profitability. This week's episode is from a masterclass series called A Thin Line Between Humility and Confidence. And it's by Andre, who's the founder of Humble Genius Media, who talks to us about the impact of storytelling in business and self-work and healing that he had to do in order to obtain success. I don't say this often, but I do believe that there is a great chemistry between Sakina, who actually spearheaded this conversation, and Andre. And I thought it was just a great, great, great conversation. You could tell that they enjoyed it. I know you're going to enjoy it. So let's just get right to it. Let's quit the talk and let's get to the conversation. At any time, tweet me at J. Head over to tbeshow.com and drop a comment. Send us this video. Send this podcast today. To a friend that you know needs it. Go go out there and execute your vision. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Thank you uh, for joining us on today's Penji Masterclass. Um, Today's topic is the impact of storytelling in business. My name is Sakina. I'm the director of partnerships here at Penji, and I will also be uh, the moderator of our 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 one person panel. My guest today is Andre Wise Davis, who is the founder of Humble Genius. Uh, which is a company here in Philly. Um, He's also a poet and a performer. So I'll let him tell you guys a little bit more about that. Um, So Andre, you want to tell people exactly who you are and what you do with Humble Genius and why storytelling is important to you and how you got into the business of of storytelling about social impact specifically? Um, So I had a pretty interesting background. First off, thank you for having me today. I yep. appreciate that. Um, I'm always no um, uh, always humble when people decide to ask me questions about things. <laughs> Makes me feel like I know something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, it's a. I, I started at a, a very young age, being being directed at empowerment. So I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and so my entire thought process from the age of three was to take a story, to bring it to someone, to get them to think about something that they've never thought about before. And so, you know, these are random strangers, me at the age of three, talking to these, you know, big adults about this uh, heavy concept of like God and purpose. And my grandma was heavy on, they had this, uh, my book of Bible stories, and my grandma was heavy on reading that to me. She would put me in front of a Bible whenever I got in trouble to share a story or a parable. And so the, I learned through stories. I was able to relate my life experiences through things that I was learning and being taught. Mm-hmm. Um and then my parents were all big on like speaking, like open your mouth. Like when you say good morning, you have to say good morning, speak to people when you see them. So these are just the principles that were kind of instilled in me. And I didn't really realize what it was doing to me. But then as I got older and I started to speak to other people in different genres and places, they started to point out like the way that I was delivering whatever it is I was talking about. And it, to me, I'm just talking, I'm just being right. passionate. Um, but in, to try to keep it short, as a poet, I grew up just exploring narrative. I grew up angry because I was confused about my environment, whether it be the religion piece or my parents and their lack of connection, mm-hmm. having a stepdad and a dad at the same time and not feeling really close to almost like either one of them, me wanting to make my mom happier. There were so many things that that poetry started to stir up in me an ability or a desire to express that. So it started off as like anger and sadness. And then over time, it just became a complete way that I looked at life. And my brain now thinks in poetry to kind of decipher my environments mm. because it kind of like poetry always gave me a parallel. Mm-hmm. So it gave me an opportunity to understand it myself 
and then help someone else understand. Because I can say I'm angry at this, or I can say um, I feel like a, a, a overflowing ball of fire today. Mm, yeah, yeah. And you know how th- those words will allow for it to disattach from what I'm feeling, which is very specific to a tangible emotion that other people have felt before, which opens the portal for their understanding. Wow. And so as a poet, I've been doing that for a long time. The first time was like, you know, I'm like 10, 11 years old and I got crushes in school. So I'm writing them poems to express how I feel. I ended up inputting one of those into a poetry contest one day in a computer lab and it got published in a national anthology of America's best poets. And that was like a freestyle wow. poem off the top about love. And so that, that gave me my, my drive. It was like a trophy, right? So it's like, I'm published and I'm like, okay, I want to keep chasing after this. So I kept writing. And as I got older and drifted away further from the religious aspect of it, mm-hmm. I still kept those kind of principles of empowering people. Mm-hmm. And so I've been on a journey, I'll say as of the, I'm 29 now. So the past like three to four years, I've been taking my life experience to now put it into like, okay, this is what I want to do for a living. Now, how does that make sense? So my story came first um, as with everyone else's does. And now as I move forward, I'm helping my story to make sense structurally to also be able to like, you know, productize it, scale it and be able yeah. to make it not just a feel good thing, but to be able to infuse some progression into it. Yeah. So you talked about how you were angry and was it, did you say resentful towards your, your parents? Was that because you think they forced you into a certain religion or it, what was the anger about? I think the anger was just lack of expression. Like, I don't think my, my parents um, did the very best they could the same way all of our other parents did. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like I, and even like back then, I think when I was younger, I was more angry at my parents, but that was because as a Jehovah's Witness, I was growing up, I'm seeing kids celebrate Christmas, uh, yeah, birthdays, um, you know, go outside to be able to play with people that, you know, weren't a part of it. And so I just largely was confused with my childhood because I felt like so much wasn't there. You were missing out. That My parents were uh, working all the time. You know, they were providing for us, making sure mm-hmm. we could eat, keep a roof over our heads. And so it was just like, it just felt like there was more to life. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. And I wanted to continuously search. And the only way I could ever make sense of that anger without having found the purpose was to like write about what I couldn't understand. Mm. And even now, as I go back, I look at it and those thoughts are, they haven't really changed. The way that I talk hasn't changed, the way that I think hasn't changed. So it's, I feel like poetry and writing gave me the foundation of my understanding. Yeah. It's, it's largely the way that I probe the world still to kind of understand. So the anger just came from like, I'm a kid, man. Like I'm so sick right, like, right. doing this and that. Like what's going on? Like I gotta go knock on doors on Saturday. I don't get a birthday. Like what's going on? Yeah, when I was younger, my my mom was a Seventh Day Adventist, so mm-hmm. she um, she worshipped on this on the Sabbath, which is Saturday too. Mm-hmm. So we would see like all our friends would be off school and they would be at like practice and just out having fun. And you know, up until the time we were old enough to make our own decisions, we were kind of forced to go to church every Saturday. And I think once you get to a point where like you are old enough, you do kind of drift away, not even purposely, but it's just like because it feels like something that you were made to do and not something that you really wanted to do. So I definitely understand that the, when you say that confusion, because you're like, why do I need to do this? And you don't understand it. So when did you start to understand what your purpose was and um, how you were going to manifest that? I was in California uh, two years ago. I actually just passed over the two-year anniversary of it. So I took a one-way trip to California November 1st of 2017. 
I did that because I was at the wits end of not knowing what that purpose was and how to manifest it, what to do. Um, so I hopped on a plane, I had a hundred dollars in my pocket and I was like, I'm a sink or swim. Yeah. But I know that out of that, I'll be able to see what I have or don't. It's, you know, no pressure, no diamond kind of thing was my thought. And I was so fed up that I was just like, if I stay here, I'm gonna just keep digging a hole for myself. So I need to go figure out somewhere to kind of like be reborn. And that was the furthest, place. I had never been to Cali. So I hopped on a plane, I went, I ended up there for three months. I worked with Baron Davis, I met Marshawn Lynch, Ice Cube, uh, Allen Iverson, and those opportunities to kind of see people, to be surrounded by so many uh, famous celebrity people at the same time, mm-hmm. it very quickly set in that like, these are just people that grind. Right. They grind. They're not out here frolicking and chilling. They're grinding. And I got to like work side by side with some of these people and really just be exposed to, like I had an idea of what life was, but I didn't necessarily know what it took to make that idea happen. Mm. And so being in California, as we all know, it's very expensive to live there. There's not a lot of time to like, you know, uh, play around outside of the, like, you know, outside of the time that you have to work. And so when I went to Cali, I just saw media i saw uh, every opportunity that i wanted which exposed me to the fact that i wasn't ready for 75 percent of those opportunities mm. which then let me know why i wasn't ready for those opportunities mm-hmm. i still chased after a handful of them messed up on some did well on others but it gave me almost like a you know how back in school you had an aptitude test mm-hmm. i feel like everybody should go through an aptitude test in life where every so often you just get tested to the nth degree yeah. of what you're capable of. You have to. So you gotta be able to be put under that pressure. And mm-hmm. so Callie did that for me because it exposed all my weaknesses, all my gifts at the same time, as well as my work ethic or lack thereof. So it was like a, it was like an Andre report card. And once yeah. I got that, I was able to look at it and say, okay, what do I want? And then once I came back from Cali, I, I, I took for granted how much the environment that I was in was feeding the habits and the thought processes that was keeping me from being what I was supposed to be. So mm-hmm. then I went from here in Cali to here back in Philly mm-hmm. and then slowly but surely like that, it, it started to dip back up. So so I have two questions. What type of work were you doing with the celebrities? And also, was there any thoughts of changing your mindset when you went to Cali or did you just take all of those same behaviors and habits there? Because they say, when somebody ups and and moves somewhere, or if you go on a long vacation somewhere, you're still taking you with you. So did you try to change your mindset at all? Or did you just go out there like, I'm gonna figure it out? I did not. To be honest, um, all I knew was I was definitely afraid of doing what I was about to do. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I just, I just did it. All I knew was I was afraid. So that was I was on the right track. I took a camera. And at the time, I thought that I wanted to be like a photojournalist slash videographer. That was where my brain was, but that's because I saw the power of of digital media. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be molded. I, as I as I said, my my relation, and as I got older, like my relationship with my parents, I don't really look to them for a lot of advice. I never really felt like I had the opportunity to, and it's like not just my parents, just people in my life always felt kind of secluded. Mm. And so, but in that sense, like, I still have a a big heart. So I was always looking for some type of approval. Yeah. Because I was seeking that approval from people I wasn't really closely connected to. 
it was also damaging the way that I approved of myself. So really California was a trip about self-esteem. Like I didn't, all I wanted to do was believe in myself. That was my, my mission was like, I know I'm great. I know that I can be, but there are times where I don't believe it. And I want to start to have less of those moments. Mm-hmm. And the only way I, I felt like I could do that is if I could go do the thing that I thought was most unachievable and survive it. And so that was the only thing that I thought I didn't have a plan. I didn't know where I was staying. I just went. Yeah. Gotcha. And so when did Humble Genius come about? Was that years later? That was earlier. So it was like 2014. I okay. just said the words one day and I was like, oh, that's fire. Got it. And then I didn't know what it was. All I knew was I was a poet. So I started having community poetry shows and making t-shirts based off of the logo, which I got tattooed on my arm, ironically, before it was ever even a thing. Like it just, the day that it hit, it hit heavy. Yeah. And I had no clue, but I was just, I was working at, as a behavior interventionist at a company. And they told us that we were getting laid off in like 90 days. And I had just got hired 60 days ago. Mm. And I was like, you just convinced me that this was going to be life changing. <laughs> you, just, right. you just told me that I was going to be able to get this job. And I'm like, it was, it was paying me what I was supposed to get paid having a degree. And I didn't have a degree yet. There was just a lot that I felt was riding on it. And then that was gone in like an instant. And I was just like, I don't want anybody to have that power anymore. Mm. I'm going to start a company. And it was, you know, it was very like brazen and, and, and brashful at first. Cause it was just quick. And I just thought I'm gonna start a company. Like it was, very much so indicative of my thought process. I thought everything could be done overnight. Mm-hmm. So it was like, I just started it, did a poetry show, 14 people showed up. It was in a warehouse. And instead of putting the chairs like front by front, so because it, it would have looked like there's only a little bit of people there, I just made like a runway of chairs, like seven mm. on the side, and gave them the most intimate session that we could with the performance we had. And it was one of the most memorable moments I had because it quickly helped me realize that Although like Humble Genius, yes, media, documentary, it's always been about bringing people together for a purpose and a cause. Yeah. And so it kind of, when Humble Genius came about, uh, Humble Genius became my baby, like my child. And yeah. having to care for it helped me also care for myself. Got you. So what exactly do you do then? You work with clients to help tell their stories? Absolutely. So we do, uh, basically we specialize in like short film documentary style content. So basically helping people encapsulate what they do into a, a tangible asset that can be distributed over time or all at once um, for like stakeholders or people that they're trying to impact things of that nature. So it's like venture capital firms, foundations and social impact initiatives who are doing a lot of work, have almost no time to tell the story, but need that story to either raise awareness or fund. Mm. What, what type of stories uh, are you telling? Like, can you give us an example of a, a good story that you've been able to, to put, help put together for someone? Yeah, so my, my favorite two, uh, one was for Build NYC. They had a entrepreneurship, um, uh, honoring entrepreneurship event where they were raising funds for their, their brand, which is a nonprofit that helps underprivileged kids in the city of New York become entrepreneurs. They mm. were honoring uh, Gary Vaynerchuk at an event. I just so happened to go to a WeWork, meet a lady that was on the board. She introduced me to someone. I ended up going there to document that. I got to sit down and talk to Gary V for like 15 minutes and interview him for the project. We got to do a recap yeah. for them. Um, and the video came out very well. It was one of my most, it was one of my favorite projects. Um, and then the other one we actually did for uh, Venture Cafe, which is a the weekly networking event in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. 
um, attached to CIC and University City. We did their testimonial experience, which should be released soon. We just finished that up. That's um, awesome. So yeah, we, those are those are two of my favorites. Nice. What are some things you think are necessary to tell a good story? What do you have to have? You have to evoke some type of curiosity or emotion. It, it's it's a it's like that wonder. You know how like when you turn on Beauty and the Beast and there's like that sparkle music, you kind of like it's leading you somewhere. You know, like every single time you come in, like a story has to I, a story has to make you want it. Mm. Make like you want throughout more. the story, you want more. You're like, okay, what's going to happen? Okay, where's it going? Like, we see it with stuff like power and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think in order to have a good story, there has to be some type of evoking emotion that's powerful enough to make someone abandon where their mind currently is to enter into the portal that you're offering them. Yeah. Before we started the, the uh, interview, you said that you were having a good day because you felt like things were finally starting to come together in your business. Um, can you talk about some of the ups and downs of entrepreneurship that you had have come in contact with in the, since 2014 and, you know, even before? I would say that it was all me having too high expectations of outcome mm -hmm. too low expectations of what it was going to take to get there. So, mm -hmm. Growing up, I've always spoke this way. I've always been this passionate. I've always thought this way. And I honestly, at a young age, thought that that entitled me to something because I didn't see it anywhere else. I just felt special. People kept telling me I was special. People kept telling me what I could do. And I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm just going to get something for that. And that was based on like how I saw certain adults in my life, um, in my family, outside of my family, it just, I didn't see that that spark. What happened just seemed to just happen. And also just like the religion thing was like, it largely, we, we were taught to just kind of relinquish a lot of that power, you know, like. What do you mean you thought that you felt that because you were special, you were gonna get a handout of some sort or like things were gonna come easy? Yes. Gotcha. And to be honest, for the most part, they always were. My life has been, it, when I tell certain parts of my story, I'm just kind of like, this doesn't really happen. And, it, it, and arguably, like, arguably it shouldn't. And now, like, I'll, I'll give some clarity on this. I could always get any job. I could go into any room. I could walk into any class and get a passing grade, regardless of whether I went or not. I could get my guidance counselor to not suspend me after a 15-minute conversation I could get like, I was always able to manipulate a situation based off my gifts. Mm. And then one day I got to a point where I couldn't. Mm. There were consequences that I had to deal with that were in the way of my influence. So you had to take accountability. Yeah, gotcha. Once that happened, and that happened around like 19, I made a very arrogant decision when I was 19 that uh, made it so that I would, I had to, well, I got arrested at 19. So at that point, I went from token, smart, articulate black man to every other black man. Mm. And I got treated like that. Every job I interviewed for, that's how I ended up working in group homes. Nobody else would hire me. Nobody else would give me a shot. No matter how small the crime was, they didn't care. It was black crime done. And I saw that switch at the drop of a dime. And from that point, all of the shame and guilt that I had been fighting off from years prior started to set in all because of that one decision. So it was like an avalanche. Yeah. And then at that point, 
I realized that things were just going to be tougher. It was going to be harder. But even then after that, I got certain breaks that made me go backwards in that thought process. Cause I'm like, well, no, nah, I'm good. Like I thought I wasn't, but I'm good. And so really what I'm saying is there was nothing in my way over these years of entrepreneurship, except me and my expectations of what gotcha. me doing what I was doing was going to get and how yeah. fast. So you were, you were getting in your own way, essentially. So when I told you earlier that I feel like things are working, it's not that they're necessarily working any more than they were before. Mm -hmm. It's that I now have been able to achieve a patience level with what's happening because there's so much I don't see that I don't understand that I don't need to know now before I needed to know the end. Mm -hmm. Now I'm to a point where I'm just like, all right, this is my life. I'll be doing this until I'm not breathing anymore. And I'll be doing it this way almost every single day. I love it. I enjoy it. Let's yeah. get it. And I don't, I don't necessarily have any, uh, I have expectations, mm -hmm. but my expectations are also flexible in certain ways, I'll say. Gotcha. So that part has allowed me to start to enjoy entrepreneurship and just press forward in my gifts. Yeah. How much self-work and personal development did it take you to, to, to realize that? Because there's a lot of people who probably feel like that, whether they're somebody who is able to speak their way out of any situation, somebody who just was born with privilege, who has just never been in trouble and things have come easy to them. It's a lot of people who are in the situation that you were in. And sometimes they don't come to the realization. They don't have a life-changing arrest or something that alters them onto the right path. So how did, what type of self-work did you do to, to get to this point? Fortunately, I went to school for clinical psychology and studied cognitive development. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, I was able to uh, study the progress or lack thereof of humans in certain areas. And mm -hmm. um, I had a uh, child development was my favorite course in school because I felt like there was so much unresolved from my childhood, right? Oh, yeah. I, I tweeted something the other day. I said, if if you could, if we could all heal the 10 to 15 year old version of ourselves, mm -hmm. we would be exponentially better at whatever it is we do in life. Absolutely. Some of us are hurt a little bit earlier, unfortunately, but for the most part, that like eight to 15, eight to 16 range where you have an expectation of what's supposed to happen in the world or in your relationships, and they don't. It kind of mars your thought process as to what you're going to go through going into the world and you set your expectations which means you set your actions which means you set your reactions mm. so that chain of events that you feel like you're going to get you kind of like if you're angry from the time you're 10 that means that you expect that you're always going to be angry which means you're looking for reasons to always be angry, be angry yeah. and so the self-work that i've had to do has been oh man uh I won't say it's been forced upon me, but there were certain moments where I just, I had to get to that point where it's like, okay, why am I where I'm at? And there, there are the moments where, and these are the dangerous moments. There are moments where you have to accept responsibility or the responsibility has to be placed somewhere. It's always supposed to be placed on you, but we take it upon ourselves to place it elsewhere, which delays our progress. There is no setback that you are not responsible for or you didn't allow. Yeah or you weren't prepared for. And that is not always your fault. Sometimes you're not informed. The self-work I had to do was literally facing up all of the things that I was failing at, because I tried everything. The development came from me saying, I want this, I feel like I deserve that, I'm gonna go after it. And then when I went after it, it was a no. Mm. Fall in love, I wanna go after that, failed at that. I wanna build this company, failed at that. I wanna speak here, failed at that. Would even get on stage and then fail on stage. Mm. And eventually, I had to say, yo, is this my parents in the way that I was raised? Mm. 
or is this me in the way that I reacted to my entire childhood? Because I spent a lot of time around my parents. And like, sometimes I talk about it and people are like, well, how do you feel? Like, listen, I love my parents to death. There was just so, I was just, I was a child that asked a bunch of questions yeah. that didn't have answers. And I started to resent that as I got older. So it's yeah. taken me, that's why this 29 year old Andre is healing still the 10 to 15 year old angry Andre. And most of that revolves around the people that I love dearest, mm -hmm. which are my parents. Like those are the, if you look at me, I am right smack mm -hmm. on my bed. But as you get older, you realize that they were doing the best that they could do. They didn't have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. And I think a lot of people spend their life blaming their trauma on why they are the way they are. But once you're an adult, it's your responsibility to do your own healing. And you have to break those cycles. You can't just be like, well, that's just how I am. I was raised that way. It, nobody cares about that. You know yeah, what I mean? So. That responsibility, you realize that like at the end of the day, the, the, the beauty that we experience in life comes at the cost of the ugly mm, yeah and then also understanding that. that like you know no humans are perfect as i got older and i started looking at myself the mistakes that i made the ways that i fell short i started to have a lot of empathy for my parents mm, yeah you do for sure i'm like i have an opportunity to do what i want to do and they had a child like they had to actually care for someone mm -hmm. and make sure someone was good so it's like i get more they more sacrificed thankful. they right. sacrificed yeah i get and they, more and more they thankful were... every day but the the most personal work that I found myself doing is, is converting anger and frustration into a desire for understanding and to turn like, to turn that understanding into a, an example that doesn't do to other people what made me angry, if that makes sense. Gotcha, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you uh, wanted approval uh, for a, lo a, a large majority of your life. Um, do you still feel that way? 50-50. When I catch myself desiring it, is when I start to like politely scold myself mm -hmm. because I realize that it's like, a, you know, it's, I grew up very close to certain people that I will never be close to ever again. Yeah. And so because that desire and expectation was built in those relationships, it's been a lot of like this understanding and you can pay, if you see it, there are a lot of people who will disagree with me and they'll look at me and say approval or it's just what they thought. Right. But, Pay attention to the adults that you're around from now on and see how many of them, when they're doing something that's supposed to be good or bad, are looking out the corner of their eye mm. to see who's seeing them. Yeah. People who blast their radios driving down the street so that more people tune into them. Come look at them, yeah. Yeah, I, I noticed that. There are a lot of us that have these mechanisms of desire for attention. Mm -hmm. And I just so happen to like confront mine full on because it's so much of what I do is in front, stand in front of crowds or stand in front of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, because I was raised to be a religious person that knocked on doors to go talk about God. Anything else that I choose is just not it. Mm -hmm. So because of that, like I grew up with my grandfather very close. My grandfather's an elder in the congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, which means he's super not allowed to talk to me. Yeah. And then there's my mom, right? So these are two of the closest people, my mom and my grandfather that I'm closest to, that I want nothing more, like regardless of how old I ever get, yes, I want them to look me in my eyes and say, I'm proud of you, I love you, no mm -hmm. matter what. Mm -hmm. Because that doesn't happen and largely cannot happen. It created the deficit in me that made me go into the world to try to fill that hole. Mm. And some it's people find habits. other ways to to try to fill it. Yeah. So it sure. built negative habits. So I would say that in my mind, 
I don't necessarily think about having approval or somebody liking anything anymore because I see that there's no real tangibility conversion to that. But I still do have mechanisms of uh, attention-seeking behaviors yeah. that I am that I I always have to address. So it's like I don't think that the work on myself will ever be done. I don't necessarily see the of end course. of it. Yeah. Um, so it's just constant maintenance, like a car, you know, like I just keep changing the oil, changing the tires and making sure we ride good. Getting better. Yeah. A lot of that attention seeking uh, we see magnified on um, social media, too. So like you said, people, somebody will drive down the street and turn up the music so more people can look at them on social media. Somebody can't do a good deed without recording it or even if it's something bad that they want attention for. It's right. the same thing. So um, how big is, is social media to, to the work that you do? Social media is huge to the work that I do, but because of that, it can become a slippery slope. So I try to make sure I maintenance myself. Um, when certain things happen that I feel like are overwhelming, uh, there are certain times where violence goes viral. Mm -hmm. When violence goes viral, like for instance, when Nipsey Hussle passed and they, they that, that video, I immediately, immediately deleted Instagram, Facebook off my phone for like a month mm -hmm. or two. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it. I already knew how I felt the first time I saw it, then the second time I saw it, and then the third time I saw it. And I said, listen, I can go through this for the next 30 days. While I am in a moment of trying to heal myself, and I know that I feel a, res a social responsibility to people who are hurt. So I'll be on Instagram trying to post positive messages, trying to do this, but I'm doing it from a deficit and that won't end well. Mm. So I make sure that I monitor the times where I don't have it or I don't need it to be on social media and I will literally just shut down. Like I will stop. It might be recently it's been like a day or two, but sometimes it'll be like a month. So for me, I feel like uh, social media detox is very important. So I make sure that stays regular. Gotcha. How does someone, if someone's having a hard time creating content that their audience is connecting with, how can they, how can they shift that and change that? Is it based on them researching more about who their audience is? Is it, uh, making it more emotional, like you said, having that emotional attachment to it. What are some things they can do to kind of pivot? I feel like a lot of people are starting to, uh, to Gary Vee said it, document, don't create, which is mm -hmm. the best antidote you could ever have. Um, once you start trying to create something, you're, you are attached to it. It's your message. If you find a lane that you want to be in, that you desire, and you find adventures in and around that lane, and you document those adventures, and then you reflect on those adventures and you combine the narrative with that adventure, you will grow your audience because you're giving them a live look. You're giving them a live dive in to exactly what they're doing and where they're going. What most people are trying to do now is they go and they do it or they're about to go do it and they start talking to people about it. that's not interesting. We want to see what's happening. So I feel like for me, documentation is the best way to go because it's like, people want to see what's going on. People want a live look in yeah. and our thoughts are not always a live look in. They are our perspective on what a live look in is. And so yeah. for people who are having trouble, I would say go around other people who are doing what you're doing, sit and have conversations with them about things that you're struggling with be real about what you're encountering and just share the journey of trying to create something. Yeah. Rather than trying to create something that you can share that you don't feel is like, you don't feel uh, is going to be scrutinized. Cause that's where most of it is. The, my biggest and favorite quote as of late is perfection is the enemy of done. I had a documentary series that was supposed to be done a year ago. 
Mm. Could have been done. It would have been a little rushed, but it could have been done. I'm still working on it now, but now as I edit, now as I do my planning sessions, I'm not caught up on everything because it's like, yo, this is a message. And if I'm delivering a message and I give you some adventure and I give you some, now I'm, you know, obviously more knowledge in like dope cinematography, like just mess up, mess up, fail. Stop worrying about whether people like it and just create because you want to create. Who cares? If your job is to tell a story, tell the story over and over and over again. And eventually you'll spark somebody. But I think right now we're, our generation seeks a lot of accolades from what we're creating, which is really circumventing a lot of our creativity. Yeah. For sure. You uh, you said when you thought of the name Humble Genius, it immediately hit you. Um, how has finding the line between humility and confidence helped you be successful? That's tough. That's an ongoing battle for me. Yeah. Because um, while I'm not religious anymore, right? Uh, let me just allow to dive this in. As a human being, I was created somehow which means that the energy that can create a human flowed through me at one point in time. Mm -hmm. To me, that is an honor and a privilege to understand that I can harness that much power at one time. Mm -hmm. As you pursue your purpose and you create things, you harness more of that power. It's the creator's power. As you harness more of that, you get more confident. As you get more confident and you realize who you are, you realize that other people aren't on that path and they're not doing that. And it's easy for you to start to separate yourself from those people as a result because you feel so great, because you feel so powerful. Mm -hmm. I feel like be, because of my predisposition to uh, a high level of confidence, because nobody was ever telling me that, uh, that I sucked when I was younger. Like it was, mm -hmm. I came out and from the time I can remember, people were like, you're still like leaning in my face. You're so handsome. You're so intelligent. You speak so well. You're only three. And I'm just like, over time, it became normal. Like, I'm like, okay, I know. Okay, I know. The balance happened when I went through my hardships because I realized that no matter how special or strong you are, that life does not skip you. Yeah, it's going to humble you. do not skip you. Yep. So for me, the humility comes into play where it's like, none of what I do or who I am separates me from any hardship that could possibly happen. None of it separates me from having feel like even, no matter how big or high I get or, or what I achieve, when I see someone in pain, it still hurts. Yeah. When I'm in pain, it still hurts. Yeah. The humility comes from me experiencing life and realizing that the confidence that I receive is not for me to keep. It is for me to give someone else as a mirror to show them because there are far too many people that don't feel confident at all for me to ever reach a place of confidence and not be able to maintain the balance of being able to give it to them. To me, that's what humble genius means. It means that the pursuit of your highest talents, your highest abilities do not separate you from people who have not had that experience yet. Mm. So it's exhibiting your humility and your genius at the same time, pursuing your highest possible presence on this planet yeah. while making sure that it becomes a mirrored representation for someone else so they can be like, you mean I can do what? Right. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can feel that. Yeah. And then being able to offer someone a portal into it, um, much like what you guys are doing with the masterclass. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's hard because I feel like the people closest to you when you are on that path, they are inevitably going to take it the wrong way. They're going to see right. that you are starting to separate yourself um, just because you, you can't have people and uh, external things holding you back.
Um, and even if they don't know that they're doing it, they're even if you say, hey, I want to do this, they're immediately going to be like, well, how are you going to do that? You can't do that. That's not possible. And that negative talk is going to eventually get into your brain. So how do you deal with growing apart in those relationships, especially with the people closest to you, if that's if that's happened to you? Because I felt it on my end, too. Let it go. Oftentimes when we feel the separation that our path is causing between ourselves and others or opportunities, we fight it. Mm-hmm. And we want it back so bad, but that becomes a distraction. If you're trying to tell me that the reality that I now understand isn't possible, it means that's because it's not possible in your reality. Yeah. I can sit and take the time to try to alter your reality through conversation or I can accept the fact that you don't see eye to eye with my vision and where I'm going. And I can let you see the results when it's time. And I will have to do my very best to endure the discomfort of our separating relationship during that time. There yeah. is no fixing it. If you don't see it, you don't see it. There's nothing I can do to make you see it until I actually make it tangible and I'm able to give it to you. And even then, you still might refute it because your brain can't accept it. Because mm. if it does, it means that you can do it too. Right. And most times, this is where people don't realize. This is why I started to get, I tried to be more careful as, I, as I'm on my mission to empower people, right? Being able to empower someone involves being able to meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people have a ball and chain to where they are in life. Mm. So I can exhaust myself trying to pull you from that. Or I can find all the people who don't have balls and chains. And we can help to show you. And if need be, we can pull you. But me by myself, I can't do it. Can't do it, yeah. So for me, I just do my best to like, like I, and I've I've had the the most extreme practice with this because like I just said, like I do this with my mom. Mm -hmm. I'll literally go and like Harvard, Gary Vee, whatever, whatever, whatever. And she's like, imagine what would happen if you did it for God. Mm, Gotcha, yeah. It don't matter. Yeah. But that's not because she doesn't believe in me. She's trying to encourage me to do something and she believes in it. And this happens with people who are in college. Well, why don't you do this major? Well, why don't you go do that job? Why don't you go do this? Mm-hmm. The problem with most, with most people is their reality is not stronger than the people who care about them. Mm. So if I believe at 50% that I should be doing what I'm doing, and my mother believes at 100% that I should be doing what she thinks that I should be doing or whoever it is that believes it. Who's going to win? Right. The stronger reality always wins. Your, combat, your, your way to combat people that don't believe is to believe and not to convince them to believe, but for you to just go do it. Because mm-hmm. you'll spend more energy trying to convince them and then that'll take away. Now, once you go do it, you've used that. You don't have it. Mm-hmm. We have to learn how to ignore the people who don't have the proper input for our dreams. And this is dangerous sometimes because it's like some of the people that care about us have actually good ideas, right? Mm-hmm. There were a lot of my family members that were like, Dre, you don't have to go through this hardship. Why don't you go get a job? And I'm like, no, like <laughs> looking back, I could have done that. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I tried it a couple different ways, but it's just, for me, I feel like owning your truth, owning your dream and owning your vision to the fact where you believe it to almost a maniacal level is the only way you'll be able to make it through having the people that you love and care about not believe in your dream and not take offense to it, but understand like, okay, when you wake up, you see something and you feel something. Mm 
And I am coming to you telling you that I see something and feel something completely different. How likely is it for us to agree? Right. It's like two different religions coming together and saying, oh, <laughs> you're right. Like, it doesn't happen. Belief in self is a religion. Yeah. Love in self is a religion. And by that, I mean, like, it's something that you abide by with a level of faith that is unbeatable. And if you don't have a level of faith that's unbeatable, every time you meet the boss of whatever level it is of your dream, you're going to have to start back over all because you didn't believe and you let somebody that, you know, loves you and cares about you convince you that their reality is yours. Mm, that's a great point. So, so give us kind of like a, a takeaway for, for everyone who's listening, anyone who is in the, the storytelling space or the social impact space, um, kind of wrap everything up for us. Do it, fail, heal, stay humble. If All you right. do it, you'll stop procrastinating. Once mm. you do it, you'll realize what you can't do, and then you'll have homework. And then once you have homework, you'll realize that all of your insecurities were actually tangible. They just came from a specific place. And then as you deal with that and you achieve again, your confidence will replace the shame and the doubt that you've been having throughout your entire journey. And then you make sure that that achievement doesn't separate you from other people, i.e. make sure that when you open the door, you bring somebody else into the table or you educate them on how to build or make their own and just understand that your life is going to go on a complete cycle over and over and over again. So if you've experienced depression and anxiety, prepare yourself. Mm -hmm. If you've experienced a downside to life, prepare yourself and understand that nothing in your life. Let me say, let me leave with this. If I had one wish, it would be for everyone to achieve everything they've ever imagined. So they could realize that that wasn't the answer. Yeah. People say that a lot about having success and money that they wish uh, everybody can experience have being rich and famous so that they know it's not the answer and it's, it's not happiness. You, you'll realize that anything, the only thing that's ever in your way in life is you. Yes, and if you can constantly be able to work on you without feeling ashamed about it, then you'll be able to achieve whatever it is you want. You'll find the answers. There is no, you won't be able to be able to tell how to get it done until you get it done. Even if you watch somebody else do it step by step. And the only way to be able to go through that process is to love and believe in yourself past the failures and speed bumps. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to, to wrap it up. You gave us some great insight. Thank you for that. Um, how do you measure the impact of the work that you do with your clients? Like what are some things you look for? Um, so for the most part, I focus on the, I do focus mostly on the empowerment side right now. So if I go into a room, I am seeking to help someone think I want my, my goal is to get people to believe in the version of themselves that they have forgotten about the version of themselves that they once believed in. I measure my success based upon like, can I get someone to think differently about their life from before and after they meet me? Mm. And as far as the clients on the, you know, content creation side, it's there, there's like a moment, you know, like, you know how like you spot uh, a long lost friend or you see your passion exists somewhere else. And there's this like twinkle in your eye. It's not necessarily something I could tangibly measure, but I know when I put something in front of someone, whether or not they feel like I have been able to give their vision life outside of them. Mm. Awesome. Well, thank you, Andre, for joining us. Uh, tell people where they can find you, reach out to you and contact you for either for humble genius or are you doing spoken word still and performance? Actually, yes. So I'm doing a, uh, I'm doing a live show. I'm finalizing the date, but it will be within the next 30 days. I'm doing a live storytelling session where I'm going to go through 
the uh, the ups and downs of life that we have through different themes of life, love, disappointment. Um, so that'll be uh, coming up soon. And you can get the date for that on my Instagram or my Twitter. Uh, both of them, the handle is Andre Wise at A-N-D-R-E-W as in Walter Y-Z-E. And you can also go to humblegenius.org to see more about some of the work that we've done so far. Very cool. So I want to thank everyone for joining who is still listening and watching to this webinar. Also, uh, another huge thank you to Andre for joining us and giving us this great insight on the impact of storytelling. Uh, this webinar was brought to you by Penji. We provide on-demand graphic design to businesses, startups, marketing teams, agencies, and more. So you can check us out at penji.co for more information about that. Also, the masterclass will be available on our website and also on our Facebook page so that uh, people can watch it later. So please share it, comment it, and leave your thoughts. Um, so another thank you to Andre and to everyone else. Have a safe and productive rest of your day.